We are in our series, Road Rules for Family Life, from Colossians 3, verses 18 through the beginning of chapter 4. The first couple chapters of this book, we're trying to make the case for the preeminence of Christ. In fact, we read in chapter 1, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So I ask you, if Christ is the firstborn, if he is the creator, the the ruler of all, the head of the church, the giver of life, the reconciler to God through Christ, and we are in Christ and Christ is in us, can't we imagine that that will have an impact on how we live our lives? Doesn't that make a difference in our relationships and particularly in our families and how we are to operate? That is the message. Colossians 2 says this in chapter 2, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And later on it talks about putting to death the, the philosophy and ways of the world that, that actually they use that are earthly, and we are to put on Christ. We are to operate under his instruction in his power and allow him to rule in our hearts. And then Paul in chapter 3 begins to speak of these different social structures that are to be impacted by this relationship that we have with Christ, namely our marriages, and then our, our relationship with our children, and then our relationships that we have on the job and how we conduct ourselves on the job. Uh, we looked last week uh, at this parenting relationship in verse 20. It said that children obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. We notice that this is a reflection of our relationship to God, that the relationship to parents that children have is the first impression they get of authority. In fact, it's a wonderful picture of the gospel. We ended with eight suggestions to reflect these relationships in our parenting, and you can listen to last week's message if you want to get that. So today we're going to focus particularly on responsibility of the parents and specifically the fathers. So let's all stand as we read our passage aloud. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So God, I pray for every parent here today 
that you would cause us to consider your instruction, that we would walk with Christ as Lord in our homes, that we would discipline our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, that we would love them well, that we would relate to them well, that we would instruct them well. I pray the same for our marriages that we would allow Christ to be Lord of our marriages and for our jobs, that Christ would be Lord of our jobs. We realize that that our relationship with you impacts every area, every social sphere. Make us a people, Lord, that are Christ-dependent community that equips others to impact their world. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. When Paul gives value to the parent-child relationship, he is lifting the consciousness of his audience far above the prevailing culture. There is a letter whose date is 1 BC from a man called Hilarion to his wife, Alice. And he'd gone to Alexandria, and he writes home on domestic affairs. And this is what he says. Hilarion to Alice, his wife, heartiest greetings. And to my dear uh, Beroas and Apollinarian, know that we are still even now in Alexandria. Do not worry if when all others return, I remain in Alexandria. I beg and beseech you to take care of the little child. And as soon as we receive wages, I will send them to you. If, good luck to you, you have a child. If it is a boy, let it live. If it is a girl, throw it out. You told Aphrodisius to tell me, do not forget me. How can I forget you? I beg you, therefore, not to worry. How strange that there would be such affection communicated in this letter, and yet such a callousness toward a child. In fact, under a section of Roman law entitled Patria Potestas, or the power of the father, the father could do anything he wanted with his children. He could sell them. He could turn them into slaves. He could even take their lives. Ancient civilization was merciless to the sickly or deformed child. In fact, you might be familiar with Pete Singer, who is a Ivy League instructor who also recommends that we perform infanticide upon deformed children. But this is what Seneca writes. We slaughter a fierce ox. We strangle a mad dog. We plunge the knife into sickly cattle, lest they taint the herd. Children who are born weakly and deformed, we drown. The child who is weakly or somehow defective had little hope of survival. And one wonders, with the atrocity of abortion in America, what generations coming up will say about how America treated their children. The point is this. For Paul to write in consideration of the feelings of a child was to lift the value of those children far above the prevailing culture. He says, fathers... Do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. 
Now, we've made the point before that when Paul gives an injunction, he's not necessarily trying to make it exclusive to the people that he speaks of. For instance, when he tells husbands to love their wives, he doesn't mean that wives shouldn't love their husbands. He's just pointing out the need for husbands to love their wives. And in this case, when he says, fathers, don't provoke your children, it certainly applies to mothers as well. But we could probably say this, fathers might be more prone towards harshness or irritability. Not that mothers are not, but fathers need to understand this. Now, provoke means to stir up, to exasperate to the point of resentment. Many of us could maybe think of our own childhood, and some, as adults, are still bitter about their upbringing, and you could probably share stories about that. The point is, there is a way of relating that is discouraging for a child, that is dispiriting, and there's a way of relating that shows respect, that treats them as people, that, that launches them towards independence and doesn't, as an 18-year-old, 24-year-old, 40-year-old, treat them like a child. And I want to again remind us that we are talking about a pattern of parenting here. There's not a one of us as a parent who has not blown it. There's not a one of us in here, including me, who's not been angry at times. We all make mistakes. And if you think that you're going to be perfect in your parenting, you are setting yourself up for a lot of disappointment. And so perfection is not the goal. What we do have to be, though, is honest about the gaps between what we say and what we do. And what we've mentioned before is that I find that our children are the most forgiving bunch on the face of the earth if we will just be honest and vulnerable to them about our mistakes. So are we using discipline, all right, uh, as, as an environment, creating an environment in the home where obedience to parents is connected to their obedience to God? And are we using discipline as a mirror of the gospel to where we, we allow the child to acknowledge his or her sin and then they can experience grace and love? It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. And every disciplinary encounter, keep that in mind. So behaviorally, we made this point last week, behaviorally, our goal is to expect obedience without challenge, without excuse, and without delay. Obedience without challenge, without excuse, and without delay, and you are now saying, what world do you live in, Kevin Short? All right? And I know that this sounds impossible because maybe you are in the throes of a battle with your children as far as authority. And maybe you're even struggling with, you know, how these biblical principles take shape within your home. But my dear brothers and sisters, can we not understand this? That if God gives us the injunction or the commandment, he also gives us the, the resources. That it is achievable through Christ. Remember the context that we're given here. That Christ is in us. We are in Christ. And then he talks about the impact that this is to have on these social spheres and particularly the home. And perhaps at the core of this issue is this. 
particularly when we are at odds with the biblical injunction, is that have we allowed this to come under the lordship of Christ? It is a lordship question. Have you committed to following scripture in your parenting? Have you recognized that the, that the cultural thinking that even progressive Christianity, as it's so-called, runs amok, runs counter to the biblical instruction? And so the starting point with a lot of these issues, whether we are in debt up to our earlobes, whether there is conflict within a marriage, is have we surrendered our hearts to follow Christ in obedience in each of these areas. I'm not suggesting it's easy. I'm not suggesting it's automatic. I'm just suggesting that is foundational. Proverbs 16.25 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end is a way of death. It's just a way of saying, if you don't follow what the Lord has to say about these things, there's a price to pay. There's a price to pay. Our most important ministry, is it not, is our children? It is. True for me. And and I struggled in this area because I'm a workaholic. 60, 70 hours a week, that's nothing. And I can leave in the dust my family. That's my propensity. And you have to realize this. You can make millions. You can have a semi-truck of goods But if your kids are out of control, there will be a day that you will regret that you neglected them, that you did not follow biblical discipline. It's sad to read of Samuel, a man who was dedicated to God by his mother Hannah. And Samuel then served as a priest and prophet. And it says in 1 Samuel 8, 3, Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. We read of Eli, who was also a priest and a judge in Israel. And Eli was a tutor to Samuel. And we read in 1 Samuel 2, 12, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. I wonder if that was on their tombstone. They were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. I mean, wow. 1 Samuel 2, 22 and 23. Now Eli was very old. He kept hearing all that his sons were doing in all of Israel, how they lay with women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings with all the people. And finally, we read this in 1 Samuel 3.13, a declaration from God that reads this. And I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God. And then check this out. And he did not restrain them. He did not restrain them. Now, I think that obviously speaks of certainly when they were younger. But listen, Eli is not judged for what he did. He's judged for what he didn't do. He did not restrain his sons. Now, can kids go wrong with good and godly parents? Yes, you know, especially when kids are adults. They choose their own path. I get that. However, Eli failed to apply appropriate restraint, loving discipline, instruction, counsel to his sons. And he paid a dear price for it. 
Note this, that these two men had moderate to good success in their vocations. And their vocation was ministry. But their kids went south. That's a warning shot to everybody in ministry. I'm thankful I have a wife that will get in my grill and say, hey, this needs to stop. I'm usually thankful that she gets in my grill, I should say. (laughs) I love her. Listen, there is no trick or magic wand or secret recipe to parenting, right? It is hard work, right? It takes forethought, planning, prayer, great wisdom, and a lot of desperation. There are times Janet and I would just go to every room in the house and pray and say, God, we need your help. We don't know what to do. We need your help. And you realize this is a, this is a supernatural venture. And listen, there are going to be bumps in the road for everyone. And I know, you, you know, you try to structure, you want your kids to, you know, be a certain thing. And when it doesn't turn out, your whole world falls apart. Listen, there are going to be bumps in the road for everyone. But we cannot think that we can get along fine by ignoring God's instruction. That's the point. So how do you keep your kids from becoming discouraged, as this passage says? Well, in short, we, we, we can praise them for their well-doing. We apply loving discipline that is marked by, by restraint and wisdom. Uh, we relate to them by, by respecting them, treating them as individual human beings. And we realize that we are on a time clock, that we are stewards of the short time that we have with our children while they are in the home. And conversely, I would suggest, there are some ways that we can ensure wounding our children's spirit and discouraging them. And that comes easy. We have to be deliberate about not doing this. And listen, I, I could share with you story after story of when I've wounded my kids. You know, this is one of the things, I, I want to speak to fathers about this. We short-circuit the influence that we have in our families. Because you probably don't think of yourself as a, you know, great spiritual leader. You know, you might think of yourself, you know, I've blown it. But listen, no matter what you've done wrong, you still have great influence. And what you say matters. That's why your kids work so hard to get your approval. And just that look that you give can destroy them. And the word that you give that can be so cutting cuts them to the core. Or conversely, your encouragement lifts their spirits. Your your arm around them saying, I'm praying for you. The, The power of that, the influence of that, do not sell yourself short, dads. It's incredible the influence you have. But let me throw out some hurdles were to avoid, ways that we can ensure wounding our kids, what not to do, all right? Constantly give disapproving looks and words. Training is not nagging, right? John Newton, the great preacher and hymn writer, had a rough life before he came to Christ, and he said this, I know that my father loved me. He did not seem to wish me to see it. Wow. Constantly giving disapproving looks 
looks and words. I mean, when that child walks into the room, do they see by the countenance on your face that you are glad to see them? Do you, do you greet them or do you just give that, you know the look, right? Next, have an attitude of continuous irritability. All right, now, many of us know we try to keep a happy face when we're at work, when we're at work but when you get home, it's like, you know, we have no sense of that. We take our bad day out on our family, and particularly our kids. There's a, there's a cartoon in which the boss is grouchy to his employee, who in turn comes home and is irritable to the children. His son, in turn, kicks the dog. The dog runs down the street and bites the first person he sees, the boss. So dads, you can break the cycle of irritability. Next, you can convey Christianity as a list of rules and then don't follow them. Be a hypocrite. Being overly strict and legalistic. We need boundaries, I get that. But we need to learn as Christians to differentiate between cultural and Christian subcultural rules and what the Bible actually says because the kids can see right through that. And if you are going to die on a hill, make sure you die on a hill where the scripture is clear about it. But if you get legalistic about stuff, lay down a rule that the scripture is not clear about, well, you're causing a chasm. And let me say, you grow up in a legalistic home and want kids to do that, as soon as they are out of that home, it's like goodbye to all those rules. So it's actually to be legalistic or saying no to everything your kids want to do, that's lazy parenting. Instead, we could train our kids to think for themselves, to learn how to take scripture and apply it to situations so that when they leave the house, you know, we're not all bugged out about whether they're going to do the right thing or not. We have trained them. We've done the best job we can to let them think for themselves and apply the scripture. And then be honest with your shortfalls, all right, between what we say and what we do and the, and the mistakes that we have made. And that addresses that idea of the kids thinking of us as a hypocrite. It's not a hypocrite when you recognize the wrong and you make that right with your kids. Next, another way we can wound our children is to embrace neglect and permissiveness. You know, some surveys show that fathers, and this is hard to believe, but fathers spend about two minutes a day in substantive conversation with their children. Two minutes. How can you train in two minutes, all right? You say, well, you know, I can text them too. Well, no, I don't think that works too good. When you fail to discipline, you fail to restrain, you fail to instruct, guess who's going to rule the roost? The children, right? And so then what happens? Conniption fits, whether they're at the mall or in the house or over somebody's house. You know what they're met with by these kind of parents? You know, it's just the terrible twos. Or, you know, they're just a strong-willed child, and then the behavior continues. Commit to applying godly discipline and kiss permissiveness goodbye. See what happens when you expect obedience without challenge, without excuse, 
and without delay and see if God does not bring immediate results. Lastly, to overprotect and expect perfection. All right? Now, obviously, as a child gets older, there's to be greater responsibility and more independence that is granted. But parents who make all these decisions for their older kids, denying them true independence are going to cause resentment. All right? And we have to learn to allow our children to fail. And, you know, this is a, and I mentioned this last week, how tough it is, and it was tough for me as well. You know, when your kids turn 17, 18, they start moving out of the house, you're not the authority anymore. You're more of a coach. I don't get to speak into their lives in the same way as I did before. I don't tell them what to do. I can suggest to them, and I try not to even do that unless they want to know. And that's a tough road to walk on. But what I've learned is if I bail my kids out at every juncture, that doesn't really help them. They become way too dependent. And I've had to learn that the hard way. I'm not going to give them the money to bail out of this situation. They're going to have to learn on their own, right? You're probably saying, man, this guy, he must not love his kids. No, It's because I love them that I realized that there was a certain way of doing things. And I've learned the hard way that if I always try to, you know, be there for them and and bail them out instead of learning these things on their own, it, uh, it has a way of handicapping them in the future. And they make excuses. And we we get to a point, don't we, where we realize that parenting is a supernatural endeavor. I need the power of Christ. I need to constantly be on my knees, praying for direction, praying for my children. John Starkey was a violent British criminal, and he murdered his own wife and then was convicted for the crime, and he was eventually executed. But the officials had asked General William Booth, who was founder of the Salvation Army, to do his service, his funeral service. And Booth faced as mean a crowd as he had ever faced for for any event. But his first words basically stopped everyone in their tracks, and this is what he said. John H. Starkey never had a praying mother. (laughs) John H. Starkey never had a praying mother. You realize, man, this is a supernatural endeavor. We're to pray for our kids, pray for their souls, pray for their attitudes, Commit to loving discipline, all in the power of the Lord. Esquire Magazine, where I usually go to for parenting advice, conducted, <laughs> conducted over 300 interviews in which they asked famous athletes, actors, presidents, and business leaders the same question. What's the best thing that your father has ever taught you? But in one special fatherhood edition, they just asked normal people like us, ordinary Americans, and here are some of the responses. And I just thought, this, this gives us a good slice of life as to how, what some of this looks like. A 46-year-old architect from Massachusetts said, when I was 18, I was shifting gears in my car, and I shattered the transmission rod. I had the tow truck bring it home, figuring my dad, a self-taught mechanic, would fix it. Instead, he got a used transmission from a scrapyard and dropped it in the driveway. 
A 23-year-old English teacher said, I was pitching in a Little League championship when our defense collapsed, allowing eight runs in one inning. I threw my glove and spit out, you guys suck. My dad heard and made me call each player to apologize. I regretted the insult, but I wanted to pretend it didn't happen. I'd have rather been grounded for a year than make 11 humiliating calls. But luckily, I had a dad who made me. A 39-year-old from Virginia said, that commitment is both romantic and real. My dad spent three decades in the Marines. He also got engaged to my mom a week after they met and had been married for 44 years. My dad, by the way, knew a couple that got married the same day they met. I thought that was pretty bizarre. But, and he said as far as he knew, they were still married. That only happens in West Virginia, by the way, but that's still. Um. <laughs> Brian, 36, from New Hampshire, said this. My dad taught me, don't try to solve my wife's problems. She simply wants your ear attentive and your mouth shut. <laughs> and all the men said, amen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Here's the great news, all right? As parents, listen, we have a choice in the kind of legacy that we are going to leave. Think of this, men. We get to mold these lives. We get to have a legacy. You choose that. Your parents don't make you do anything. The culture doesn't make you do anything. You choose your legacy. Let's make sure that loving and godly discipline is a part of that legacy. Let's pray.